0: Welcome to Grief Is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I am delighted that Lindsay Whistlefenton is here with me today. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Megan. I am so excited to be here. So this is really lovely. Lindsay and I have a like a long history together in my world of grief and loss. And I can remember, you know, taking a walk and and I left you a voicemail to talk to you about your work and actually really to just say your work is incredible. I'm so excited about it because I think people make complaints a lot and don't leave compliments a lot. And then you called me back and we just had this really lovely heartfelt conversation and have been sort of trading resources and conversations since then, I want to read your bio so people who are not aware of your work can become more aware of your work. So Lindsay Whistlefenton is an Emmy award-winning storyteller who's passionate about using public media to build empathy. She's currently a senior producer and director at WPSU, where most recently she developed, produced, directed, and wrote Speaking Grief, a multi-platform initiative that works to create a more grief-aware society. She continues to Produce content for the initiative's presence on Facebook and Instagram. So Lindsay, that is how I came to know you is through Speaking Grief, which I follow on Instagram, which continues to just be, I think, one of the most incredible, I'm going to call it like a learning platform now. I came into it knowing it as a documentary, but it's become really so much more. So thank you for being here. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about how you came into that work. And then the reason I asked you to come onto the podcast is because I saw on your Instagram several months ago that you lost your beloved dog, Birch. And you post about Birch all the time. And it completely took my breath away. And my instinct was like, oh my God, I got to reach out to her because this cannot be okay. So you can start- At either entry point, tell us about work, start with Birch, whatever, wherever your heart is.
1: Thank you, Megan. Yeah. And I think you and I have had like a mutual admiration society going for several years now, where, yeah, as you said, you would be like, I love speaking grief. And then I was like, I love grief as my side hustle. So this is so exciting to finally come together. And, you know, thank you for the work that you're doing. I don't think there could be enough conversation about this ever-present, pervasive topic. So I'll I'll start with work and then we can talk about, about Little Birch. Um, so as you said, I'm a producer at WPSU. I'm a director there. It's the PBS NPR affiliate station in Central Pennsylvania. So several years ago now, I think as far back as 2016, one of my colleagues had had this idea to produce a documentary or some sort of program on people grieving the loss of a child. And then that colleague since retired, but I sort of, I sort of just something about that hit me and kind of took up the mantle and started researching and developing that project. And then, you know, fast forward through a few iterations and attempts to get it made. And I should say back in 2016, 17, 18, everyone was skeptical, you know, we were trying to get it funded. And a, what we heard a lot was nobody's going to want to fund a story about grief. No one's going to want to fund a project about grief. No one wants to talk about that. And, and myself and a, a couple other colleagues who were really sort of dedicated to this said, I think you're wrong. And thankfully, that was not the case that we were able to connect with the New York Life Foundation, who funds so much great work in this space. Yeah, they really do. They're like the preeminent funders. They are, and they just keep coming up with new things, new projects. They did something during COVID called the Brave of Heart Fund to provide relief for COVID families. So we, we connected with them and normally they fund more, I would say, kind of service or research based thing. We were sort of outside of their normal wheelhouse as this public media organization, but they saw the value in widespread story sharing and storytelling and, and the power of narrative. And so we launched we'd been working on this for several years and then it ended up launching Speaking Grief in the middle of May 2020. So, so crazy. Never I mean, could have prepared it was like, that. It
0: was like you were predicting something. I mean, honestly. And yeah. and for folks who haven't watched the documentary, part of the power of it is that you guys have done I think the thing that grievers need which is you have you have normalized the experience of grief by talking to everyone across all kinds of relationships parents who've lost children partners who've lost spouses same sex partners siblings across cultures and you know particularly on the Instagram account You guys, I think it's you, you know, every day or every other day, there's another meme on there, which is just like a gut punch of what is just the truth, right? It's not like only true for children or only true if you're a widow, it's like just the truth of grief. And I just think there are not that many other things that are represented in the media um, so inclusively.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was I really appreciate that. Because obviously, as you can tell it's a passion, the work of love passion project. And thank you for calling our social media account a learning platform, because that's very much how we think of it. So one thing I always do like to take the opportunity to say is a lot of people at this point, which is amazing, are familiar with speaking grief to documentary. But there is so much more to the project than that. There are so many great pages of learning content on our website. There's the social media accounts, which again, we really don't use to promote, we use to educate. And so we just try to use every platform we have to normalize grief, to validate what people are going through. And then I think what makes speaking grief particularly unique is when we started out developing this project. So we always look for where can we add value? And there are so many great grief organizations, counselors, people doing work on behalf of grieving families, and providing that sort of direct support. But where we saw the biggest gap was the rest of us who maybe aren't sort of actively identifying as being in a grief experience at the moment. But as as we all know, grief, grief touches everyone. So it it comes but as people who maybe have someone in their life that they want to be supportive of a friend, a neighbor, family member, co worker. And The intention is there, but the skill set is not. And I think I really identified with that early on, just all of the blunders, you know, as you start talking to people and realizing all of these things that you said from the best place, but you realize once you learn a little bit, how kind of off or misguided they were. And so it's not a lack of caring, it's a lack of skill building, it's a lack of preparation and it's a lack of conversation. Like we can't get better about something if we don't even acknowledge that it's something we need to work on. So I think that's really what we tried to do with speaking grief was one, just normalize it and make it less scary and less foreign to people, the the idea of grieving. And then also once we get past like, okay, this is just part of life and we need to Be able to interact with it to then say, okay, now how? You know, here are, you know, as we know, there's no PhD that you get that says, you are a rock star at supporting someone in grief. You got this, you'll nail it every time. Like it's so personal and charged. There will always be mistakes made or or ruptures that need to be mended. But the idea is to keep trying and to try with a little bit more of a base of understanding.
0: There's so many things you and I've had this conversation before, and I think we probably have equal, equal size soap boxes and equal level of passion, but there's so many things, about planning for death that we expect people to do, right? Like we, and also people maybe don't do them because we're pretty we're pretty avoidant about the concept of death, but we do, you know, we want you to have life insurance and we want you to have a, had a conversation about like who would care for your children and maybe the, I don't know, the, the heirloom jewelry that's in your family. Like there are some things that people do see as generalized norms. The actual emotional preparation for the 100% inevitability that you will be presented with core grieving in your own life or with a beloved who needs your support. The idea that we don't say, hey, you know what, proactively, maybe you should be following this Instagram account or watching this documentary or Because everybody, everybody loves their loved ones. You know, we want to be able to be there. I mean, I got a call from a friend from high school this morning, and she has a good friend who, you know, the husband died very suddenly. And she said, there's a whole bunch of us and we don't know what to do. And I was like, well, get on a zoom call. It's okay. You know, you guys need support and you want to figure out how to be supporters. But what you and I know is there is some guidance Like there are some actual truisms and some things. And I think, you know, what's really beautiful about your Instagram account is that it's truisms and then it's like somebody's name. You know, this thing was said by someone who is grieving. So it's not just like something that's out in the ethos that we think we should or shouldn't do. It's like, this is what a griever said out loud. And I don't think we should be waiting until we're in that moment right? Like oh, that's kind of the worst not. time, right? Like we're so activated.
1: and It's so it's, so the big spoiler alert I've learned in this work is that, you know, we, first of all, think of grief as happening only with death. Grief happens all the darn time. And it happens in so many contexts that we don't even label as grieving. And it also these skills apply to any hard conversations we have in life. Like I look at, oh my gosh, it's the same skill set and grief that you need in DEI work, for example, where it's listening to someone, not questioning or invalidating their experience and then just asking questions to learn more and not assume that yeah. you know this person's lived experience, that you know what they're going through, and just staying really open and really really humble because it is a learning experience and i think the most freeing amazing thing i have learned in doing this work is that it is okay and probably better for me to not try to pretend that i know what i'm doing and i you know the number of times i have just said gosh wow that really just it hit me i feel for you i wish i knew what to say to you i just i don't have the words but wow i just i feel that i'm sorry you're carrying it but just saying I don't know what to say. I don't know what you're going through and not feeling that pressure to have this supreme wisdom that I'm going to say something that's going to somehow make this awful thing less awful. That's not my role. And that's way beyond my, my pay grade as a human being. So my role is just to, if I can make that person feel 5% less alone or just you know a little held or like someone's seen them, and I've been on the receiving end of that too, where it is the littlest things I'll, I'll share a personal example. So as, as you mentioned, you know, my dog died and, and definitely want to talk about that. Cause I have all kinds of yeah. uh, feelings around that, but I also previous to that in the last year I got divorced, I sold a home that I loved and put a lot of work into. I've just had a lot of life changes and I had, you know, as as always, you know, learning and growth experiences with my family as they were trying to support me in these changes. This is really hard. And I don't think I would have had the skill set to even articulate that before doing this work. So that's one thing I will say to people. I always think grief support people are just kind of stumbling around trying to figure out what to do and they don't know any better. And a lot of times when you're grieving, you don't know what feels good. But so if something feels good, just positive affirmation. I feel like is such a great way to sort of coach right. that.
0: Because I'm thinking about the very first time that you and I talked. I think I just said to you, like, you know, what's your loss story? And and what you said to me was actually, I'm not in the work because something terrible happened to me. I'm in the work because I care about the work. And I remember thinking, like, wow, that's actually maybe the first time I've heard someone say that to me. And it was a it was like this beautiful learning moment for me because the deeper I get into grief as an experience, which I define as sort of the energy that is created by the loss. So the energy that ends up in your body, people talk about feeling an emptiness, but I think there's this energy that's in there. And, you know, we experience loss all the time. So there's grief all the time. And I think part of what I'm coming to understand is that there are these like, isms and ideas around how we're supposed to do this. And with grief, one that gets said to me all the time is like only the people who have been through this know. They're the only people who can show up. And in my personal experience, the people who were the clumsiest and maybe even the hardest on me and with me were people who had been through really profound loss and maybe didn't do work to heal it.
1: I think we need to do that with ourselves too, right? Like it's 100% that we have this whole idea around. And so I'll just plug to WPSU has also created this app called follow the nudge. And it just sort of like, you can, somewhere you get reminders to check in with someone basically. And our idea behind that was sort of the, it takes a village. And that's the same idea with grief. Well, part of the idea of that was it's a lot of times people do care, but we just get busy in our own lives. So you just need that right. little lun- nudge to take action. But our, our whole, sort of ethos around that was in the joke I always tell it's like I don't cook at all I'm terrible so I am not the person you want bringing you a casserole after your person has died I'm very handy so maybe if your faucet's leaking I could be that person but it makes no sense for me to try to force myself into this prescribed role of being the casserole baker when I could do these other things that are still needed or what I've learned is I am someone who is pretty comfortable, holding heavy feelings. So I, I can be that person who, if you need to ugly cry or say angry things at this point, I'm fairly comfortable to sitting there and being like, yeah, you, you do it. I'll sit with you. And not everyone can do that. And so not one, one of those Means of support is not better than another. You know, we need nourishment, we need all kinds of things. So, if you're on that scale where you're maybe you're hearing this and you're like, Wow, I don't want to sit with someone while they cry, I'm not good at that. You don't have to because there are other people who are capable. And I think when we put those expectations of these are the and also assumptions again, it goes back to the curiosity of I'm assuming that's what you need, I'm assuming you need food, I'm assuming you need or want words or you want to talk about it when maybe what you need is just someone to go to a movie with and not have to talk and just zone out or someone to send you silly videos once a day to make you laugh or someone to go for a walk with you and get physically active like there's such we have such a narrow idea of what you know air quotes being supportive means yeah but it's such a huge spectrum and so i think on both ends for the grieving person yeah as you said understanding that no one person's going to be able to, to fill all that. And so I had to kind of check in with myself. It was the feeling so paralyzed by not being able to fit into that mold of, yeah, I don't know the words to say that it, it comes across as just, you've forgotten that you're going, you know, that your person's going through this and there's so many other things you can do to show up. And so going back to why I do this work, I am all about what makes us tick as people and how we can build better, more authentic lives and relationships. And I see grief and and pain and loss and all of the hard stuff as being the most fertile garden of potential for meaningful relationship because you're raw, right? Like you're just, you are like who you are without your armor up when you are in the state of grief or loss like you are there's such a pureness I think of interacting with people in that space so I get weirdly excited by it because I'm like yeah. you know I always joke I was like I'm an introvert but I'm an introvert who's really curious about people and so what I love about this work is I just get to get in it with people and there's just it's like all of the surface stuff goes away and you're just dealing with this this person at their essence that's right well there's a
0: million things that I was thinking when you were saying it but you landed on that word curiosity and I think again when we're jacked up because the bad thing has just happened it's really difficult for our brain to get curiosity online but asking people who are listening to us right now wondering like okay well the last time someone in my community needed support around a death I signed up for you know the casserole delivery but I hated doing that because I don't cook and then I felt insecure or that was exactly the right sweet spot for me. It should feel good to you as a supporter. Our job is not to fix or transform the loss. It's literally to let the person who is grieving feel seen and known, you know, this epic loneliness that exists in grief. We feel like we're the only ones that are this way. We're the only ones that have ever gone through this. And that the thing that you said about the about the app, about the nudge, is so important because, you know, everybody is the is the leading man or woman in their own story. And so the fact that you're not sitting in grief, when you are grief adjacent to a story what you know, if your sister's husband died and you didn't think about that for six hours today, that doesn't mean you don't love your sister. It means it wasn't your partner who died and you, you know, and you had a work deadline, but being able to circle back in a way and say, I'm going to keep my sister in my mind. I'm going to, I am going to put it on the calendar. Yeah. That that's actually, I call it sometimes like grief hygiene or like a, a
1: Ooh, grief like
0: practice. Right. Which is just like, I remind myself, right. I, I have a little note that reminds me to take my vitamins on my bathroom mirror, reminding myself to check in. I have a lot of dates in my, and I'm not perfect at it, but, but what I want is that the people that I love, I want them to know that at the bare minimum that I care about the fact that they're grieving. I can't fix it. I might not even really
1: understand it, but I care that it's happening, right? And and I, and I remember, you know, and again, I think remember is yeah. in what you just said so important because I'm am someone like I will put if I know your dates, like they will go on my calendar. I will set reminders you know, and basically this is what follow the nudge does now. But I used to say, you know, every couple of weeks, check in with this person. I don't think that's disingenuous to, to, to use aids to do that. Cause as you said, we might have the best intentions, but then stuff goes wrong in our life. And then pretty soon you're like, Oh shoot, it's been three months and I haven't checked in. That doesn't mean that person's not in your heart. And I always say, it doesn't mean you don't care. You cared enough to, to take the action to make sure that you stayed with them. And then something else I think you said was so important was if you did sign up for the casserole training, to be clear, y'all bakers and, and cooks out there, I'm oh, not knocking the casseroles. They're oh so God, they are so we important. We need you. Don't go anywhere. I'm just using okay. that as the example. Cause that is sort of the, the standard go-to that people think of and, and it's become sort of a joke in the grief world is the casseroles. But if you do that, and like you said, it's not really your thing. You're not a cook. It becomes stressful you're probably going to view that much more as just an obligation or a task or something right. like think of it like your job like when you're doing something that's not really where you shine in your career or is you know in anything you don't usually feel great about it. it's not something you're going to get excited about you might do it and check it off the list but when you're in your you know flow or whatever and you're doing something that really is is true to you and your gifts and your skills and your your passions, you're, that's when you're willing to go the extra mile. And that's when you'll, you know, work into the night and it doesn't feel like work. I think the same thing is true with support. If you can figure out like your personal inventory of what your strengths are, and obviously it depends too on how close you are with the person, what your relationship is. But I think that's where that authenticity piece comes in on both ends of just, you know, we did a thing in speaking grief where we asked people, what message they would give to a grieving person. Then we did one. What would you give to a support person? It's one of my favorite videos that we did. It's just people talking to camera. And one of the people we interviewed said, show up as yourself, not the person you think the grieving person needs you to be. And I hold that in my head all of the time because it's like, you know, you know, when you feel like you're playing a part that doesn't feel real to you. And again, you're going to burn out a lot faster doing that then if you just go with a, yeah. It can hurt the griever too, if you show up
0: inauthentically. I mean, I I've used this example before, but I have the, I have this sort of lovely member of my community who I, I think it was after my dad died, came over to me in a public place and was like, Hey, I heard about your dad. I also lost my dad. And then she said, if you, if you want to go for like a walk at, or get a glass of wine. And because I was a little bit unguarded, I was like, wait, we've never gone for a walk or had a glass of wine before. Like, we're not going to do that because my dad died. Like, that's weird. And she was like, yeah, I don't know why I said that. And and, I mean, she meant it with love, but I was like, that's not the right level of offering, right? Like, we're not going to become friends, more, more friends because my dad died. So it was like, it was enough for her to acknowledge it. That meant a lot to me, but you can feel the part when it's like, why are, why are, you know, I don't need you to, to do X, Y, and Z. I'm, I'm curious because this is a question I ask people when they come into my office. Was there something when Birch died, was there something that someone did for you that really like landed? Did you have a person who, or people, because I think sometimes when people don't know what to do, it's just helpful to hear. This is what helped Lindsay.
1: There were so many things. I have never felt, I don't think more supported in something. I'll back up and say, I'm so grateful for because of speaking grief. It's like, I feel almost like I'm reaping the benefits of this work for me internally and in my internal experience and for the people around me who are all familiar with it and all engaged in it because of, of, you know, working at the station or being in my life. So for me, My experience was completely informed by understanding grief better. I did not leave my apartment for a week. And I recognized the privilege in that. The the irony was I had randomly decided in the beginning of the year, wow, staycations are great. I need to do that more. Every time I take one, I'm like, why don't I do this more? So I picked two random weeks in January that I was going to take off in the year. One of them, Birch was put down on a Monday, was the the week that she died. So by the grace of God, everything, I was able to just like my calendar was clear. And I gave myself permission for that week to do basically whatever I needed to do to survive that week, which for me was, you know, pretty much lying in bed, clutching her stuff and just giving, you know, barely you just no hygiene, just like get through the week. So that was my permission. And I didn't feel guilty about it. I didn't question the depth of pain I was in. I sobbed. I, you know, I, I embodied is. the yep. ish out of that grief, but then in terms of people in my life, oh my gosh, just, and, and I, and I have some guilt around this too. Cause as I shared with you offline, I used to so not be an animal person. People cannot believe when they see me in my Instagram page. Now it was a later in life thing. So I used to be that person who, you know, I think I'm always fairly empathic and, and, but I didn't understand that bond. And so when someone I knew had lost a pet, I was sort of like, oh, I'm sorry, that's too bad. But I I had no concept and probably in the back of my head, there was a little bit of like, well, it's just an animal. And, you know, hopefully I think I was still genuine and, and trying to check in on them, but I just didn't get it. And I was so grateful that I didn't receive any of that. I don't know, karmic stuff back because everyone in my life got it. And as you said, I think probably because I am that crazy dog mom who like half of my page is Birch or was Birch, you know, and, and, you know, then the added layer of all this is, you know, Birch was the dog I shared with my now ex-husband. So she was also the last link to that chapter of my life. So there's just a lot of layers to this. And I think people recognize too, that she had been so important to me in this transition and to, my life now from my divorce, so there was so much to it. So not one person, and I I will forever be grateful for this. Not one person invalidated my grief or made me feel it was out of proportion. If any, you know, if anything, it was the opposite people. The minute I got home from the vet, some of my friends, my girlfriends from Rotary, had left flowers on my doorstep. So I came home, and that was the first thing I saw. Another friend came over that night and brought over. I couldn't eat but like junk food and stuff and just sat with me. She said, I didn't want you to be alone. And and I I will say I do sometimes tend to isolate. And so she knew me enough sort of to challenge me on. I don't think it's good for you to be alone that night, you know, yeah. that first night. But I will say too, the the day after was the worst day of my life. I thought the day, I mean, putting her down was excruciating, but that waking up, it just feels so, you know, she was six and a half pounds at the end, and you cannot believe the amount of presence and you know, that this little six and a half pound creature took up. It just, I just remember the words that come up are empty, still, and silent. Like it just felt like I was in a tomb and it was, it was just a God awful feeling. I had no idea how I was going to get through that day. And I had friends texting me throughout the day. And so what I learned to so your initial question was people took their cues from me. And I think that was so important because I had a couple people call me and they didn't pressure And then they would text and say, you know, they would even say no pressure to call back. Um, I just I'm thinking of you or I'm just checking in. And I had a lot of people who would do that throughout the week, just checking in, no pressure. And, you know, and that way I could just or, you know, they'd say, I know you're not okay, but are you okay? And I knew what they meant. Like, yes, I'm I am alive and fairly functional as a human being. But I'm, you know, I'm still here, basically. And to me, I now I always look at things for like market research, for grief work. I'm like, Wow texting was amazing because I needed to feel that connection to the people in my life but I could not handle conversation I like I said for a week I think the first time actually I had to go out to the dental hygienist or to the dentist on that like Thursday and it was the first time I had sort of emerged from my cave and I just remember her asking me a question like three or four times and I was just staring at her and finally I got that she was asking me if I wanted fluoride and I was like whatever you know like I just and then I think I finally told her I said my dog died I'm not and again, because of this work, I knew that that was very normal, that I was just in this fog. And then I went back into my cave, but I had just so much support. Another friend, you know, I had friends dropping off things at my door. I had one friend who knew me well enough. She said, I know you're, this was cute. She said, I know you're, you're probably not worried about eating, but I would really like it if you ate something. How do stick sound, which is, you know, like a sweet sugary dessert near me. And then it was cute because she sent a package of those, but then there was also a salad and she wrote on the note, you know, I also included the salads because I care about your physical health too. And, you know, try to eat this and then, you know, other friends, this just, just car, so many cards. And one thing that was amazing for me, as you said, Birch was, so she was a little seven pound Maltese. She had, she had been rescued. She was just a She was such a sweet little rascal, and she was my first dog, so it was you know, head over heels, full on puppy love. And so, pretty much as soon as I got her, my Instagram blew up with like funny, silly pictures of her. It sure did, Lindsay. It sure (laughs) did. After her death, I had so many people who I don't even talk to or interact with that regularly, like people from high school, you know, that you're friends with, post, I'm so sorry, like seeing pictures of her put a smile on my day or I used to love seeing her costumes and like her having that legacy meant so much to me so in terms of what people did right like oh my gosh I cherish those little just like one sentence things on Facebook that like seeing her made me smile or you know I'm gonna miss laughing at Birch's silly costumes or her antics like oh my gosh that that meant so much
0: yeah, I think that's one of the things about about inviting people into your life that can you know can be a pro and a con in social media. But certainly, you know, as somebody who's connected to you, when I learned that Birch died, I reached out because I was like, "This, there's no way this can be okay." I care about this dog, and that you know, I again, I think when we're talking about grief and loss it doesn't matter if i don't actually even like dogs it doesn't matter yes. my relationship with dogs it's that i am acknowledging that this dog was really special to you and and again i think you were pretty open about saying like it's a wild surprise to me to discover this and when we did talk on the phone part of what we talked about was just that you know animals love us with this unconditional like embodied energetic freeing love that is, I'm not going to say it's non-existent with humans, but humans are so much more complicated based on their own motivations, their own needs and their own drives that for some people, the best they are ever loved is by their pets. And I, I mean, I'm saying by their pets, there are, you know, certain animals, dogs, horses, wolves, you know, that are, that are, particularly affectionate cats that are intuitive and so many stories of when you're not doing well, those animals coming towards you and being with you and supporting you and loving you. But, you know, I've also heard things about iguanas. I've heard things about ferrets. I've heard. My one
1: sister had a boa constrictor that she was
0: (laughs) bonded with and in love with. Yeah. Attachment, right. That that's what we're talking about. Things that we are attached to, are, we are at risk of losing. And, you know, also I know that Birch wasn't, it's not like when you adopted Birch, you knew that there was an ongoing illness. And that tends to also be true for people with their, you know, the smaller the pet, the, the, the larger, the risk that that little system, when it goes haywire oh yeah. cover. And so the number of people that I've heard who were like, we just thought, when we brought our pet to the vet, we were not prepared. We didn't understand.
1: Well, it's weird. Cause I was, and I wasn't with her because at her very first vet appointment, she was basically misdiagnosed with another type of cancer. So yeah. we went through like they, it wasn't Here. question. It was pretty much you're she's going to die in three months. There's nothing we can do. And so we went through this acute grief process and, uh, you know, trauma. And I mean, I had just, I spent two weeks falling head over heels in love with her over Christmas. I stayed home alone with her on Christmas so she wouldn't have to travel. Like it was, it was so traumatic. And I will use that word. Like, I mean, like literally every time I went to the vet after that, I would have a response and thankfully, you know, spoiler alert, that turned out, excuse me, not to be the end of her. And we got three and a half years with her. But ever since that day, I felt like we were on borrowed time with her. I always had this feeling like I wasn't going to get that long with her. So again, she was somewhere between five and seven. When we got her, she'd come from a puppy mill. She had a lot of health issues. But when I got to like the first year after we got her, I'm like, okay, we hit the one year mark. Like I started to breathe a little easier, but then You know, there's guilt around this because she had a collapsed trachea, which one of the things that made her her was her weird little alien noises. Like from the time we got her, she just, you know, I feel, I feel kind of bad saying that because it was, it was a medical condition, but she just, it was adorable. And she would, you know, this little creature would snore like a freight train if she laid her head in the wrong way. But so that they had told us would just sort of progress Um, And eventually they kind of made it sound like not a big deal. Like we'll put her on steroids, you know, she might need medication, but we're years off from that. So when her breathing started getting worse, I assumed it was okay. We'll just take her to the vet and it's time to put her on medication. And they came in and said, well, the good news is objectively her trachea is okay. Except there's this new mass pressing on it. And, you know, it turned out she had thyroid cancer. And so it was two weeks to the day of when I took her to the vet that we had to put her down. It was that fast. And she, she was still herself, which was really hard because she, again, was my first dog. So I was Googling all of the checklists and I'm like, well, she's still eating. She's still playful. She's still interested in things. But then at the top, it would say, but the number one thing is like they're breathing and their pain level. And if they can't breathe, it's not a good quality of life. So she just started struggling so hard to breathe. We were trying to get her in with radiation, like we were doing everything we could. And then just one day it went, you know, people say that. And it was like that I left for an hour to go to my trainer. She was still herself. When I left, I came back. And when I came in, she was just lying in the bed and barely moved. And and it was just like, you know, I called her dad and said, "I, I think this is it. And we spent the day with her and made the call. And that too was, I just remember looking at her, you know, I couldn't imagine making that call. But I looked at her and this thought in me of like, you know, because I would say like, mommy's here. And I was like, I am her mommy. And it, she trusts me to do what's best for her, even if it breaks my heart. And I can't, I can't keep her here like this for me. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Making that choice and participating in your little babies, leaving the world and dying is a different kind of love than we think about when we're adopting a pet, right? But it's one that many people go through because pets don't live as long as humans for the most part. And what you're describing is what many people talk about, which is, you know, just a big shift. And then all of a sudden you're in it. You're just, Mm -hmm. you're in the moments where these are the ones we were trying to avoid. These are the ones we were trying not to think about. These were the ones. Can you tell me just a little bit, like how does your grief show up? I mean, obviously you're feeling it now because we're talking about it now, but how does your grief show up in your sort of everyday life now? Does it come in waves? Is it still in the morning? Has it shifted because you've moved? Like where, where are you along the
1: trajectory? I will answer that I wanted it. I had one more thought about what people did. Her, The vet that put her down after sent me a card in the mail, and I had just started at this vet. And I had the thought, even if this is a form card that they send to every single person, I don't care. It was this beautiful handwritten note, and it came immediately. And then the vet who owned the practice, like two weeks later, sent another one and said, I'm sorry about And so just y'all vets or medical providers out there like such a simple thing but thank you for the compassion that you show to your your clientele yeah. that meant so much so my grief is it definitely ebbs and flows I actually don't even know if that's true I think it's sort of always there I think just yeah, I mean I know it's always there but it it surprises me my own how deeply our ex- expectations of you know our societal stuff is internalized because I think I'm even like okay I'm good you know it's been a few months I'm like oh my god this was the purest love I ever had in my life that's you know it's ridiculous that it's only gonna be a few months because I think what surprises me is how readily it's still triggered in there and so yeah I, I won't be thinking about her and then you know it's I feel like everyone's it's the blink of an eye and I will be gasping like drop to my knees kind of and it comes and goes really fast usually and I know enough to not fight it when it comes you know and then and I didn't know in the days after you know my ex-husband had brought me home and he said do you want me to take any of her stuff out I said no I want to see how I do with it and I had no idea how I would feel with her stuff that has been the biggest comfort to me you know like I I know a lot of people and there's no right or wrong, like who will pack up all the pet stuff immediately because they can't handle it. I was the opposite. I dumped, you know, her sweaters, her blankie, her little stuffed monkey out on the bed and just, just buried myself in them. Yeah. I wore her collar on my wrist until I got a tattoo of, you know, of the sign on her collar. The only reason I stopped is because I was afraid of losing it. Mm-hmm. I, I wear a necklace now with her ashes. So she's always with me. Even, even the ashes going to get them was awful. But then I remember feeling so comforted that she was back home with me and yeah. I would just put her, you know, it's weird, whatever, put her on the couch next to me. I slept with her ashes until I got another dog. Like, I mean, it was a little box, but so I was very about physical connection to her. And I wrote, actually, I, it's funny. I started a journal. I called the book of Birch and I was so afraid of forgetting anything about her. So I wrote down all of her quirks, her physical quirks, like memories, nicknames, everything I could think of. I just dumped into this journal. And then actually a friend sent me a a package that had another journal with pet prompts and I'm, I'm a big journaler anyway. So mm-hmm. I did that, but I think I really just gave myself permission. Like I said, in that, that first week, you know, I just remember reading somewhere like grief is such an embodied experience. And I feel like I really let myself have that. I mean, you know, ugly cry, scream, screaming into pillow kind of you know, and 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 just being very open with my feelings. You know, I'm ia spiritual person, and I had a lot of anger. I remember texting my brother. I said, "Why would God take her from me after everything I went through this year?" Yeah, yeah. He had to kill my dog. You know, and then you know, and I can frame that. You know, and that was the best. Like my dad, who's also very spiritual, wrote back. He said, "I don't know, hon, Like I don't think he yeah. took her. I think it just happened." I said, "I know," but and it was like you know, in my rational mind, I know it's not that planned or what, you know, it's not this intentional thing, things happen, but in the state of grief, that was good that nobody tried to talk me out of it. Everybody just said, I don't know, you know, and so just letting myself feel all of that has been really important. And then as I've shared with you, I got another dog very shortly after, and I was concerned about that. I knew honestly, the day we were going to put Birch down, I said, I can't, be without a dog anymore like it's become such a part of my life that I knew I needed that presence in my life and I was worried because some people told me oh if you get a dog too soon after you might resent it or you might you know and so I wanted to be fair at whatever pet I would get but I had no qualms about it because I know the birch knows how loved she is and I don't for a second feel guilty about that and I think if anything I learned so much rehabbing her and her trauma that I think I like the idea that her legacy is that now I can apply what I learned to another rescue dog yeah, And, and actually another person peripherally in my life It's weird how we like need permission for things had had a dog die. And then I found out that that person got a dog like two weeks later and it made me feel better because I'm like, well, I'm not not the only one who does this because I know people who like any grief, it's very personal. I know some people it's been years and they're like, well, I couldn't imagine getting another dog, you know, and and I know no judgments intended, but sometimes it does feel a little judgy. But again, I just check in and I'm like, I, I don't have any doubt that Birch knows how loved she was. I mean, and widows,
0: widows and widowers hear that, you know, they start dating four months after their partner died. And, you know, all of a sudden there's whispers and concerns and what, what people often say, right. Which is that d- judgmental phrase is like, well, I just couldn't imagine doing that.
1: Yeah. And they're like, it's kind of like you do you, but wow, I couldn't. And so, yeah, I'll say, so I got Ellie and Ellie's another rescue dog. And I will say, I was looking at, I knew I wanted a, another like mill dog. I love, I love, you know, giving, giving, the legacy, yeah, yeah, giving little dogs another a, you know, lease on life. But I was looking at Maltese's like birch. She was a little Maltese. And I think that would have been really hard. I'm, I'm glad that didn't work out. But so Ellie is a Morkie. So she's half Yorkie and half Maltese. And I like that she's sort of half birch, but not holy birch. Um, and, you know, she has been, you know, as you were saying, dogs, just get it. There was a day I was crying about birch and like, swear to God, she came over and like put her paw on my shoulder. It's like they know. And, and I'm, I talked to her, you know, I talked to Birch yeah. too, and I say, I love you so much, honey. And I just really miss your sister right now. Yeah. And I had a, I posted about this sort of a Birch like visitation where the morning I was going to get Ellie and I had asked Birch, I said, you know, I need you to help mommy find the right dog at the right time. Birch's big thing. She was never into toys. She never really figured those out, but she loved little blue nylon bones, like those little dental bones. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I find those and I would find them in my pockets and my purses and under my pillow, like everywhere. But there was one I was rolling up. I was in the kitchen and I said out loud to Birch, Are you ready to have a sister? Because she's still present in my, you know, in my heart and in my home. And I rolled up this rug and I swear, like I didn't see anything on the floor and I came back in and right in the middle of the floor was a blue nylon bone
0: oh stop and it. it
1: and it was not like you 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 know if it were under right. the rug I would have felt right, 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 so right, it right, wasn't like right. it was under the rug and it, fell Man, out it. I so I, it was it when it was half chewed you know it was like and I just wrote it was like I feel like I had just asked her out loud like are you ready for a sister and I felt like that was her way of welcoming Ellie to the family um I mean,
0: you have hit so many parts of the grief narrative that are so important for us. The idea of sort of like continuing your relationship with your loved, lost, you know, the, the idea, this is so important. Many, many people will call me and say like the equivalent of you're an expert in this, tell me what to do. And it's like anything else, which is, I don't have your answers, but if you can trust yourself to be in the energy, right? Like the grieving energy to be with it instead of be terrified by it, that you can experience it. You'll know, you'll know whether or not you need to go get a new dog, whether that I, is the right way, grieving forward. I don't for whether think there's people, a right or
1: wrong. Like no, everybody, I just mean, like, your
0: way. It's the right way for you. People ask it about stuff a lot. They say, yeah. like, how will I, you know, should I get rid of my husband's clothes? And what I say is, if you're asking the question, you're not at the answer yet. You oh, will okay. love. So if you can leave them there, you're not going to forget to get rid of them. But if you can leave them there at some point, The energy inside your body will answer the question and it will feel like it's time or you'll think, oh, I'm going to donate these or, oh, I should ask somebody to help me. And if, you know, a year from now you haven't had any energy about it, then we can talk about bringing it close. But for most people, should I date is a theoretical question that's almost like based in fear. What's gonna happen is you're gonna be in the grocery store at a cocktail party and a little lurch is gonna happen inside your body. And all of a sudden you're gonna a little bit wanna date. And then we'll have that conversation about what is it like to wanna date four months after your wife died. And do you want to go ahead? And do you want to move for forward? But the answers are inside
1: of each Just one. It's trusting yourself. Two real quick practical things I'll give because you'd ask me that they might help someone else. I've heard other people say they struggle this with like online bios and things. So yeah. I always had in all my bios like you know I'm a I'm a dog mom to Birch. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't imagine taking her name off, but I also don't want people asking me about her and assuming she's still my dog. And I've heard people say this, like with children or with other family constructs. So what I did that felt right to me, it's personal is I still leave Birch on there and I put in parentheses, you know, the little, whatever, like cross or dagger yeah. X sign, whatever it is, you know, to indicate that she's passed, but she is still my dog. Love that. Um, so that was that, that, cause I struggled with that, you know, on, on, online, I was like, I don't know how to do this. That feels right. So that's what felt right to me. So I don't know if that'll help anybody else. And then the other thing I would just say is I, I think, again, I'm going to thank work on speaking grief. I, this is the first, I think, kind of grief experience where I really felt very comfortable accepting the help that was being offered to me. Yeah. So when people were saying, can I send you food? You know, some people just brought it. Some people asked or can I check on you? Can I do this? You know, what do you need? It was the first time I felt, um, okay letting people in to help me and I think because I have been on the other side of that where when you are trying to support someone you are so desperate to be able to do something as we said you can't fix it but you want to be able to show up and so when we're in the grief role we're like well I'm a burden I'm whatever but I tried to hold on to no I know like when I've done that for other people and somebody finally relented and told me like yeah, I'm kind of craving this takeout. And I'm like, okay, I'm there. You know, like it felt so good to be able to bring takeout and a six pack to somebody that now I know in a weird way, it's sort of- Let them do kind, it. It's sort of an act of compassion it is. to it open is. yourself to help.
0: Yeah, to receive the love that's there. We're going to wrap up for today. This conversation was so important and generous. I am so grateful for both you sharing about your professional work with my community, but also- this, you know, I said to you offline that, that talking about pets is the thing that I get asked about a lot because I think it really is disenfranchised. I think people really don't feel like the world has made enough room for it. And I just really have felt connected to your relationship with Birch and your experience. So this is just, you know, even just for me has been really beautiful. If people want to get in touch with you, know more about your
1: work, you can go, I have a website with a contact form. It's Lindsaywhistlefenton.com. You can also go to speakinggrief.org, follow on Instagram at WPSU grief. So any of those ways, but yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk grief for lack of a better word. So
0: much for the generosity of being with us today and sharing the story. Thank and I know you and I, we're going to be doing more work together in the not so distant future. <laughs> Thank and-
1: you for your work, for holding space Thank and you. just, yeah, just love you. Love what you're doing. Thank you so much. Right Megan. Back at
0: you. Thank you, Lindsay. We'll talk soon. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm.